Brain for Business podcast with me, Lauren Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Brain for Biz and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. Internationally, healthy adults are consistently falling below national and international recommendations for physical activity and failing to meet guidelines for dietary intake. Interventions to address behavior change in these fields typically target clinically at-risk individuals, yet these don't always work, and obesity levels in developed countries continue to rise with significant implications for both individuals and societies. So what then are some of the barriers and indeed facilitators to healthy eating and exercise? And how can we as societies help people to sustain positive physical activity and healthy eating behavior change? To explore this, I am delighted to be joined today on the Brain for Business podcast by Dr. Sarah Snuggs. Dr. Sarah Snuggs is a chartered health psychologist and lecturer in the School of Psychology and Clinical Language Sciences at the University of Reading in England. Her research interests include children and family eating behaviours and other health behaviours. Sarah, welcome to Brain for Business. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This may seem like a really silly question to start with, but I'm going to ask it nonetheless. Why is it important for us all to eat healthily? I think it's interesting that you say it sounds like a silly question because most noticeably the physical health benefits are what come from a healthy diet, right? You know, we we know that having a healthy diet protects against conditions like diabetes, heart disease, various cancers. And you talked as well in your intro about clinically being clinically at risk. So we know that. And, and I think we're all told that on a fairly regular basis. Or in other words, unhealthy diet can pose as a risk factor to those conditions. But there are quite a number of other less obvious benefits that come with a healthy diet as well that we perhaps don't get told about as often. So we've now seen a number of studies consistently show that more positive mood is associated with with eating healthily, better sleep, improved memory, um, lots of other cognitive benefits as well. And in some cases, healthy diet can also help protect our mental health. So studies have shown it to be a protective factor against anxiety and depression, for example. If there are so many benefits, as you highlight there, both physical, cognitive, mental and mood and so on, why is it then that some people eat healthily and others do not? Because it would seem like, as the Americans say, a no-brainer. Absolutely. And, and I think what it really comes down to is is why some people find it more difficult or more challenging than other people. And for me, there's kind of two strands of that. So there's how well their environment is set up in the first place to support a healthy lifestyle. And there's lots of different reasons, which I'll mention in a minute, as to why that environment might be better or or less well suited for us to eat healthily. And then there's also individual priorities. And that's not to say, I think, as you say, it's a bit of a no brainer, isn't it? That we would we would all probably like to eat healthily, all things given being equal but we've got lots of other things going on in our lives that we sometimes need to put first above and beyond our diet so I guess I'm picking those two things so if we think about environment first our food choices they start really really young so studies have shown that even mothers can have some impact on their child's food choices when they're in the womb 
So one study uh, looking at eating in pregnancy showed that babies whose mums had consumed more vegetables while they were pregnant were then likely to show preferences for those same vegetables or willingness to taste those vegetables when it came to weaning onto solid foods as a baby. And then that really continues into childhood. There's loads of ways that our parents shape our food choices. So they, they might be role modelling, stock, stocking the house with healthy or unhealthy food offering this wide variety of foods that we need to be exposed to as children. And although children often grow out of picky eating, there's some evidence that indicates that those food preferences in childhood can follow us into adulthood. So that's kind of the start of the the environment story. And then, as I said, I think competing priorities take plays a big role as well. So people make their food choices for so many more reasons than just, is this healthy for me? So we might be led by, yes, a desire to live a healthy lifestyle, but other factors might be the price of the food, how long it might take. So time, whether that be time to prepare it or time to buy it, to purchase it, the convenience of the food. Also, rather, obviously, we might be led by our appetite. We might be led by a desire for weight control or some people seem to be led more by sensory appeal, like how palatable the food might be and their mood. So it's all about kind of which of those things right now when I'm making my food choice matter the most. And and I think that's kind of that kind of adds up to part of the reason we we start to find it tricky and then throw in ideology. So you've got things like vegetarianism or sustainability or your religion might sort of um, guide some of your your dietary choices. And then throw in other people and their influence. And again, that's sort of I think that kind of feeds into both the priorities and the environment sort of side of it. So we're we're very influenced. We're very social beings, aren't we? And we're very influenced by what's known as social norms, which I don't know if you've come across this with with other. I know you've spoken to other psychologists, so this may be a phrase that you're used to. Um, but it's basically the idea that we that we have about what other people normally do. So our social norms are, what do I think you eat and the other people around me eat? And there's loads of research that suggests our choices are kind of impacted by people around us in that sense. And then also we're more likely to eat, interestingly, um, if we're surrounded by other people, we're more likely to eat, eat more. And we're even more likely to eat more if we're surrounded by friends or if we're surrounded by family. And that's called social facilitation. So there's just all of this stuff kind of playing around together. And we hear a lot about willpower and self-discipline, which might be where you thought I was going to go with the answer to this question. <laughs> but actually, I think that's often quite misunderstood. And in psychology, we do we do think about behavioural control, but we think about perceived behavioural control a lot as well. And that's this kind of idea that it's actually more important what we think we can do than what we can do, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah. And I would I would add one further thing to that, which is health inequalities, which is that sort of idea that there's a there's a health difference for unjust reasons. And that partly feeds into food choices in terms of health from availability and affordability. But actually, again, probably comes back to the environment and looks a bit it's a bit more complicated than just the question of cost. So that, I think, is the sort of summary of why it's because there are so many different things at play as to why it, it is harder for some people than other people to eat healthily. You were talking there about, about social norms and mm. as the father of a 14-year-old. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to me, the, the thought that comes to mind is on the one hand peer pressure. So yeah. if I'm out with a group of friends, I might want to eat 
X, but actually all of my friends are eating Y and they might think I'm weird if I eat X. Absolutely. Um, but but then also, uh, and perhaps it's an extension of that, the, the role that influencers might play in modern society in terms of crafting and shaping how we in, engage in food. Uh, do, do you mean like social influencers? Social influencers, yeah, on, on yeah, YouTube, so I and guess Instagram to, and so on. Yeah, to, to unpick what you said there, there's the sort of two strands of that, isn't there? So yes, in terms of peers especially adolescence is a really interesting area. So um, I do quite a lot of work around children's food choices and also quite a lot of work around adult food choices. And there's this kind of gap in the literature that we're trying to address that we, we don't know what kind of takes us from that childhood choice where we're very heavily influenced amongst other things by peers at school and things, but we kind of know where all that influence is coming from. And then you get to adulthood and we sort of know what's going on there. And actually that transition is a really interesting time. And it, 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 that's exactly what we suspect, although the, the jury's still out a little bit, is that the sort of influence of peers is really important at that point, because you know we know it's really important in lots of other areas, don't we? So yeah, why not? But yeah, to, to go back to the, the, um, the influencer question, I just, I, it, it's such a minefield, isn't it? Um, I think, the internet can be a really helpful source of tips and information, and it can also be really overwhelming and inaccurate. And yeah, so like I was saying, my, my own research predominantly looks at um, family eating, children's food preferences, and I'm also a mum of three. So I follow quite a lot of these accounts on, for example, Instagram that relate to weaning and to kids eating and to family food. And sometimes I just, yeah, slightly want the grand to swallow me up when I read some of the stuff that's out there so like the other day I saw a post that was citing a study that I'm quite familiar with and um, that I include in my lectures at university it's not one of my studies but I, I know what they did and they basically sort of had this big post saying that the conclusion was that the best thing we could do was give our children a never-ending supply of chocolate because that would make them more balanced as human beings and I just that's not what the study said at all right and you know it may be really cross because there's so many people that that rely on those types of sources for their sources of information and, and ostensibly they seem like quite sensible kind of balanced posts and then you know people rely on that and and then they get given this very very heavily sort of misinformed information so I think I mean that's just an example but yeah I, I think it's it's therefore really important to kind of not take it with a pinch of salt but to kind of carefully consider who who you're who you're following and why you're following what they might be might be sort of proposing and then yeah I think there's obviously there's a there's this brilliant opportunity to meet like-minded people as well online and and again sort of similar similar things and then there's services available like you might we're all being offered sort of apps and weight management control programs or whatever it might be that the algorithm has decided might be appropriate for us and again, I just sort of think, you know, some of those are brilliant. And how can we unpick it? And then you bring in the social influencers and the celebrities and the endorsers. And again, you sort of, you know, some some people out there, I, do, I you know, Joe Wicks is a great example, right? You know, he got us all moving in the middle of lockdown. I have no doubt that what he puts up on his posts is evidence-based. It's thinking carefully about what is a nice digestible message to give someone. At the same time, unnamed celebrities who are sort of promoting a product that might help us lose weight or something, and we have no sort of information about whether they might be being paid to do so, is completely different. So, 
I'm not sure I've answered your question. I just think it's a very, very difficult one to unpick, really, where where that's helpful and where it's not helpful. It is difficult to unpick. And I, and I think inadvertently, you've also perhaps touched on one of the key drivers behind this podcast, the Brain yeah. for Business podcast, is to actually go to the, the researchers and say, well, what did you mean when you were talking about eating chocolate as opposed to going to some 20-year-old influencer on Instagram. Or, Absolutely, or it's the evidence-based, right? We're all about the evidence-based. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I guess thinking about that that evidence base, but also maybe linking it through to, to that uh, those points about influence and influencers, mm. you know, how, how are those sorts of, I guess, contextual and environmental factors actually utilised? In, in the real world. And I'm thinking, for example, of restaurants, cafes, you know, food mm. companies to to encourage us to, to eat and, and drink in particular ways. Again, quite a lot to unpick there. So in terms of the restaurants and the cafes, possibly one of the, the most sort of um, recent examples that we've seen is that whole calories on the menus that, that's been introduced in the UK, particularly quite recently. And that's been quite interesting because there's been, I guess, a train of research around that that's in its infancy and also we've been following this in the media a little bit as well and people's kind of views on it and how acceptable it is because that's really important it's not just whether something works it's whether we're willing whether it works for us as people rather than just is it effective and you know the idea of putting the calories on the menus is this idea that we should be it should inform healthier and less calorific choices that's the idea is that we all you know we now go to our unnamed chain restaurant and we now understand that there's a thousand calories in that pizza and that might either nudge us or give us a bit more education about it but the jury is kind of still out on that one and both from the perspective of whether it works and whether it's a good thing to be doing because we don't know for a start whether people might compensate for their calories elsewhere in the day for example but also it's based on this assumption that fewer calories equates to a healthier choice and that's not necessarily true for everyone so there's again it's sort of you know, that's that's one example of something a restaurant might do. Maybe a more clear example of the nudging that I think you're sort of referring to mm. is an experiment that took back place of Crows and colleagues back in 2016. Um, and they took three train station shops and they manipulated three conditions. So I think this is quite a nice one because we've all been in the train station making some pretty poor food decisions in a rush to catch that train and wanting to get something to eat probably something quite palatable we might be on a fun trip that we sort of think well I deserve a good snack or we might just be in a rush or whatever and I think it's quite easy to see how we might make unhealthy choices in that environment so what they did is they had one shop that they kept the same as normal didn't make any changes one where they moved all the healthy food to be more prominent at the front of the shop so the the crackers the fruit that kind of thing and by default move some of the less healthy food to the back and then the third one was exactly the same except there was a sign to tell them customers that that had, is what had happened that these changes had been made and what I thought was quite interesting in this was that both the nudgy shops so the ones that did it essentially secretly and the ones that didn't do it secretly both saw a change in purchases compared to the week before when they hadn't made these changes um, such that people were buying more healthy food and less unhealthy food and what I think that really shows is that we it doesn't need to be nudged like we can do this ourselves we we it's okay if we know about it if you see what I mean it doesn't have to be done discreetly and kind of yeah in secret 
And I think that's, again, a quite maybe quite a nice example, thinking back to the calories where probably we're not going to compensate for those extra calories somewhere else. That's just our decision on the train. The rest of our day will probably look the same. So, yeah, so I think those those are maybe a couple of examples of how that can that can happen in, in real life. And then you've got other nudging, like, you know, pictures of these. It, it makes such a difference, doesn't it? If you go to a restaurant and they show you photos of the food and it looks revolting versus if it looks delicious, <laughs> that kind of thing. There's lots of ways we could be nudged along. Well, if we maybe stay with that question of, of, of nudging, hmm. one of the other areas I've, I've heard it used is, is just in terms of, I guess, not not so much removing choice, but simply realigning choice by mm. having, for example, the fruit basket next to the checkout rather than the um, the, the the chocolates and the uh, and, 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 and the yeah. sweets. I mean, d- d- is is there really an evidence base for that? Um, looking more broadly, really interesting. You ask that. So yes and no. In short, yeah, there is. There's definitely evidence to support this idea that that like we'll pick up what catches our eye um and and especially if we're standing around in a queue like you said you know we we all know those unnamed shops that offer you a kilo of chocolate when you get to the front (laughs) of course you're more likely to buy a kilo of chocolate if it's offered to you than if it's not so yes there is evidence for that and and there's evidence for other nudging as well so some colleagues of mine here at Reading did a pilot study a few years ago where they rearranged the vending machines at, at the university and what they did is they got the water at eye level and they moved the fizzy drinks and they did some other manipulations of conditions as well I think but essentially they saw a possible effect it was quite a small study but um of, of students purchasing fewer fizzy drinks and more water and there's this phrase um eye level is by level and it's again it just comes back to that idea that we'll, what catches our eye we will go for so and and also there's evidence um i think in school ca- canteens about the fact that if you again if you move the as we we're talking about adolescence earlier it's a particularly important stage if you if you move some of the healthier food to be more prominent and make some of the unhealthier food more difficult to access again they see increases in healthy food purchases so there definitely is evidence broadly but I think where I would be careful is that some individual that doesn't mean all nudging works and some individual studies show sort of quite different things so for example one one thing I think we were talking about pre-recording was this idea of smaller plates and I think smaller plates is fascinating because there is actually a huge amount of evidence that if you use a smaller plate, you will serve yourself less food. And the same is true if you use smaller serving dishes, if you use smaller bowls. Some studies show that that even transfers to drinking. So if you give people a smaller cup, they'll drink less alcohol or they'll drink less sugary beverages. So that's a clear nudge. And there's quite a big evidence base for that. But I ran a very small, again, study a number of years ago when I was training, looking at smaller plates. And I got half of my group had a normal sized plate, which was properly, we measured up to make sure it was properly the average size a UK person uses as plate. Mm-hmm. And then the other half had this small plate that was the size of the government's eat well plate that they were promoting at the time for this exact reason, for this this evidence base. And I got them to serve themselves from a bowl of pasta, plate of garlic bread and a bowl of salad. And the small plates, as predicted, serve themselves less food. But when we looked at it more carefully, the only thing they served themselves less of was salad. So they'd, 
they you know they they compensated effectively they'd given themselves just as much pasta just as much garlic bread they just left themselves less room for the salad and i think at that point you really have to think about sort of why are we doing this and what's the effect and and think more carefully about before these things turn into policy you know that if if we literally just want people to eat less food then great that's been achieved but if we'd like them to be making more informed healthier choices that's not happening there so i guess i think that's quite a good example of where we can't just sort of carte blanche nudge mm. everyone and just assume that works all the time. Because I guess to, to use that salad example that you're giving there, mm. on the one hand, they're reducing the healthy input into their yeah. meal, but at the same time, the calorie in, impact, which I know is only one measure, mm. but the calorie impact is probably going to be minimal from a few lettuce leaves anyway. Absolutely, exactly. So they're removing the healthy food. And I think that's a really important point because there's this assumption, and we do, we live in this obesogenic environment and a lot of people would benefit health-wise from eating fewer calories, but that's not the only thing going on. So I don't think it can be the only sort Mm. of focus. And the other thing that was actually quite interesting about this plate study is I did a bit more work and they they got sent home with their plate to eat their dinner every night that week. And the people who had the, the the smaller plate, they consistently hated using it, right? They were they were often having two plates worth because they thought they deserved it. So you sort of think, well, okay, probably having even more food then. Um, but also they said it got them overthinking about whether they were overeating, they whether they needed to worry their weight about their weight. They some of them just found it really irritating. So obviously that had impact on their mood. And you sort of think, well, you know, reducing your calories is one health outcome. But all of that stuff, that's important too. So you've got to unpick it a bit more carefully, I think. Absolutely. The the other thing that comes to mind as you're talking there about plate size Mm. is is more broadly about how our thinking about portion size has been recalibrated. Mm. The example that uh, I've seen around is... Um, for, for example, bags of bags of chocolates or bags of crisps or, or, or chips, as they're known in some countries, that suddenly seem to have, have grown. So the normal size now seems to be bigger, even though once upon a time that might have been a family size bag. Am I imagining things or is that actually no, happening? No, you're not. You're not. I actually went to a presentation about this very recently. Um, a guy called Eric Robinson, who's very big on this stuff. And yeah, he showed us some graphics of sort of, 20 40 years ago and honestly it was it looked exponential on the screen how much bigger these these servings were and and we were looking at fast food in particular so you know you're not imagining it for sure but what I find fascinating is also the opposites happening isn't it because also the Mars bars are shrinking and the you know the pack of crisps you're getting fewer crisps in and we're all feeling a bit short changed because we're paying more but getting less and so, again, it's just this really difficult thing for the general public to look at and think, well, what, what's a sensible choice here? Is this more? Is it less? Am I imagining it? You know, am I looking at rose tinted glasses at my upbringing when I bought penny sweets and, and all of that kind of stuff? So, no, you're not imagining it. But I think, again, just really inconsistent messages that we we as the general public have quite a lot of difficulty. Yeah. Kind of untangling. And then you put on some labels on the outside of the packages saying reduced salt or reduced fat or reduced sugar. Mm. And it seems like a really healthy choice, even though maybe it's being reduced by a small amount from a very high base. So, yeah, you know, it's contradictory. I want to go back a step, if we can, mm. just to, to to the contextual factors, because we often hear, and I'd mentioned this in the introduction, that, say, you know, in developed countries, there is 
seemingly a particular trend towards obesity, but even within developed countries, um, there are certain stereotypes about certain countries being being more obese or, or more overweight than others. To what what role do, do do kind of national cultures play in in terms of framing how we view food more broadly, but but also how we view fast food and and snack food and and so on. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I know less about the sort of fast food side of that culturally, but I think culture and what and absolutely country sort of nationality differences as well play a huge role in our food choices. So there are many cultures that will place, you know, and probably a lot of us in the UK can relate to this too, that will will place such an emphasis on food way beyond food as fuel. And I think it's really important to sort of caveat what I'm about to say that I, I do think it's incredibly important that we enjoy our food. Like that is one of the key ways to ensure that you maintain a healthy lifestyle is by enjoying it. If, if you don't enjoy it, then you, you're going to struggle to keep anything up kind of thing. But, you know, the language of food is huge. You know, we use it to celebrate. We use it to show remorse, to apologize. We use it to sort of, you know, bring together at family times, at sad times, at happy times. You know, we drown our sorrows, we comfort eat, but then we also have a feast or we crack open a bottle to celebrate. Like, And in particular, there are some cultures more than others that really place quite a lot of emphasis on that. And one of the things I found quite interesting in the past is I've worked with patients in the UK who particularly come from backgrounds where there is a lot of emphasis on sort of coming together as a family for feasts effectively and Mm. food is love and as I say I I place a lot of emphasis on enjoying food and family dinners they're all great but what's been what's interesting with those patients is the resistance when they try to change their health behavior from family and then how incredibly difficult spectacularly difficult they find it to make those changes if they don't have the support around from the people that they're living with and, you know, on the flip side, if you do have the support of the people you're living with, you are so much more likely to sustain a behaviour change. So, yeah, I do I do think that's really important. And, you know, I wouldn't want to sort of, it's, it's not my area of expertise, so I wouldn't want to unpick which cultures do this more than others. But it's certainly something that I've seen. And I think it does come back to that kind of what, what language are you using food for? Um, and if it is that sort of celebration, love, sometimes even power as well, like it, it, that can all get caught up in it. And, and just makes all the other stuff, all the sort of more pragmatic side of making a food choice, just all the more difficult. And, and as you said at the very beginning, you know, food has so many impacts, not just physically, but also cognitively, emotionally, mm. mentally. And, and, you know, for, for societies and, and for, you know, for, for everyone, it's, it's a, such, such a vital thing. We, we need it. We do, exactly. It's, it's so much harder than other behaviour changes, I think, because... I mean, I, I worked in a stop smoking clinic for a very long time, and that's really difficult to do to stop smoking. But ultimately, you either smoke or you don't smoke. Whereas eating, people can't just give up eating. Do you know what I mean? They need to yeah. you need to really adjust your behaviour. And it's, that's a much harder thing to do, I think, than to give up a bad habit and just make sure you get it out of your life kind of thing. I think it's, you know, people really underestimate people who find it easy to eat healthily and to exercise. I think the same applies I think find I think they underestimate how difficult it can be for other people for all the reasons that we've already discussed. If people wanted to find out more about your research, is there anywhere particular they could go? 
Um, yeah, so I'm on Twitter. So I'm at Sarah underscore Snugs, Sarah with an H. And we have got a, uh, a website at Reading based it's specifically about children's foods and the research we do around children's eating, which might be of interest, which is quite a long mouthful. Research.reading.ac.uk forward slash kids hyphen foods hyphen choices hyphen. Um, and I also have an Instagram feed, which is not so research. I mean, it's evidence based. It's not it's not so much about the research. It's specifically aimed at parents of sort of younger age children to find really quick and easy ways to feed your kids healthily, basically. So based on the research, but just the, it's called Family Food in Five. The idea being you can create this stuff in five minutes and it's not very difficult. And again, that kind of comes back to those competing things. We want it, we want our kids to be healthy, but we also want it to be quick and stress free. Um, so that's there too. Okay, that sounds great. And I will uh, make sure to include those details in the show notes. Dr. Sarah Snugs of the University of Reading, many thanks for your time. Thank you very much.